0: Hello, I'm Adriana Jacobs, and welcome back to the seventh episode of Staying Alive, a podcast series on contemporary poetry and crisis. This week's episode features the poet Vani Capaldeo. Right now, I am standing outside of my office on Walton Street in central Oxford. When I first moved to Oxford, I was awestruck daily by the visible traces of its deep history. In fact, just a short walk from here, you'll find yourself at the site of a partly ruined medieval castle. The castle mound was built in the early 11th century and incorporated the 10th century Saxon structure, St. George's Tower, which you can still climb today. You would be hard pressed to find any material evidence of the 10th and 11th centuries in the United States. Much of it was erased and replaced by colonial history. By comparison, such remnants are commonplace in Oxford and in England generally, but these traces too only represent the past that is allowed to remain visible. Vani Capaldeo, who was born in Trinidad and studied at Oxford, explores the layered, polyphonous histories of the places we inhabit and pass through in their recent book, Venus as a Bear, which was shortlisted for the 2018 Forward Prize for Best Collection. Last December, I met with Vani in London to talk about history as a reckoning of erasures, translation, and roses. First, Vani, I want to thank you for agreeing to be a part of my podcast and i'm really excited to talk about venus as a bear with you
1: thank you very much i'm excited to talk about venus as a bear and the zombies i hope we do get to talk about some
0: zombies i want to begin actually with the second section of venus as a bear which is titled Shameless Acts of Ekphrasis. And a number of these poems address, describe, and respond to items in the collection of the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford. And we both have spent a significant amount of time in the city of Oxford. And it's a place that has a real tenacious grip on the past. First of all, what makes it shameless to engage in Ekphrasis?
1: Part of the shamelessness is in trying to recover a more ancient idea of the crisis like where i would be responding not just to the object so not just to write a poem or to painting but to the building as a whole or the movement of people around the object which is more like the old idea of responding to an architectural item or to a procession or ritual and uh, i also felt that uh, at that point uh, My right to speak as someone from Oxford was often questioned, even though my parents had married there in the 50s and though I had been living there since 1991 and had lived there both as a student, as a citizen in my own right, and as my parents' daughter when they briefly moved back to Oxfordshire. So there was a kind of shamelessness, uh, which I wouldn't have felt, say, pre-2000 or thereabouts, but a kind of shamelessness in saying, Oxford is also mine, and I'll say what I want. And how did you go about selecting these objects for further
0: scrutiny? In some of these poems, it's almost like you're recovering a sense of, of the voice, but then also transforming it or translating it through your own
1: I'll say that I need to thank Nick Owen and other people who were involved uh, with a sort of loose group of poets from within and outside Oxfordshire. Nick curated uh, poetry tours uh, in which poets uh, would respond to an object and do a small talk and people would talk to them and then move on to the next. And I heard extraordinary people like Sarianne Dury, who was also a stained glass restorer and maker, who'd been working on small churches in in Oxfordshire, talk about the objects. So the first thing is uh, I was deciding on my objects very much as part of a collective enterprise uh, for engaging random people who might be in the museum. The second thing is... uh, i used to go to the museum in order to feel connected to my ancestral past uh, as someone of indian diaspora heritage uh, because We weren't allowed, for example, to burn flames in our rooms at college, uh, and it was absolutely imperative for me to burn flames at certain times of the year for ritual reasons, uh, and I recall frequently setting off the fire alarm, uh, and then I would wander out into the quad in my dressing gown, pretending I didn't know who had just done that. And I hadn't realized how much I missed uh, just having certain objects at hand, so I used to go to the museum to look at those objects behind glass, It was very peculiar having a personal rapport because I used to wonder whether people had just picked them up imagining that nobody was using them and not realizing that they needed to be installed, say, in a holy cave or for use at a particular time of the year. And therefore, people not seeing them in use would have assumed that they were abandoned rather than site or time specific. So, my first poem for the shameless acts of expresses uh, Museum Stands In, begins uh, with the museum as a site for that sort of object uh, haunted by the more active past, uh, which then gave me a kind of double ghost status uh, because I would have been capable of activating that past, uh, but I was standing the other side of a glass from them my own practice combines being intellectual with slightly meditative uh, and the jamaican origin poet kai miller and i and other people have spoken about this uh, but I think Jason Allen Paisan as well, who's working at the University of Leeds at the moment, and Vladimir Lucien, who's from St. Lucia, which is poetry as a kind of channeling, where rather than working from what I think of the editorial brain, where you collage together fragments of things that you know, you open your mind in a meditative way and channel what you don't realize, you know, Including what seems to be other voices. And I don't mean to say you have to believe in the external reality of the voices But that the poetry comes from a different and more inward synthetic process Rather than from an external and and consciously driven synthetic process And So I used to spend a lot of time just walking around the museum and dwelling with objects And noticing the difference between something I liked something I wanted to research uh, and something that seemed to stir a a sort of voice in my head. And I made a point of only writing the ones that stirred a voice. Um, In this section,
0: we encounter the poem The Last Night, A Nightingale, where you write our everything lyrical forever. Mm -hmm. So coming back to this idea of channeling and also its relation to dwelling and yes. inhabiting. Um, this line seems to suggest this idea of poetry as offering some kind of
1: future or afterlife. That was quite present uh, in the poem, the speaker's going on a walk, which is going for a walk in South Oxford, uh, where my parents had a house at the same because they had tried to emigrate back to Britain, but they weren't living there. And it was in the night of uh, December the 31st, 1999, when everyone thought that the world might melt down if computers couldn't cope with the change to 2000. I think the buzzword was Y2K. And I did hear Nightingale singing, and I remember having this curious feeling of time being folded in to other time, so that even though I was... Uh, in the present time that humans can experience with a relatively limited sensory and memory capacity, that there's also an infinite time which is incalculable and even if what we considered the world was ending, that infinite time was what it was enfolded in, even though it was only processing chronological time. So I wanted the lyric poem to open out into that, the end of it, and In a sense, there, the afterlife is non-human, and the stuff of that poem is tame itself. Now, I want to jump ahead a little to um,
0: the poem, For Presence, with Petrarch. I get the sense reading your work, not just this collection, but the earlier ones that you are very much playing with the idea of contemporaneity, what constitutes a contemporary poem, uh, what it means to be writing Mm -hmm. in the present. Um, And your own work is both contemporary poetry, but at the same time creating a space in which the past is made present and the present is pulled pastward. (laughs)
1: <laughs> it's Four Presents with Petrarch was literally a present because it was commissioned for the 60th birthday tribute anthology for Peter Hughes, who's a great translator of Petrarch into avant-garde contemporary forms with contemporary and anachronistic references and places. So the gift idea was there. But also I was playing off my own poem in an earlier book, Four Departures from Wolf and Erdbacher. And rather than departing from the poem. I wanted to make the Petrarch come into the present. Uh, and and uh, so I very much cited uh, my rethinking of the Petrarch. I began by anchoring it in place rather than time because I approach time sometimes through place. So I wanted it to be in Cambridge, uh, as Peter Hughes was often in Cambridge. So that Cambridge is a sort of secret landscape in that poem. But the other thing is uh, that I looked at the images and references in the poem, and thought that there were different ways of bringing those into the present. That one was just the pure one of sound, because if you speak a poem, it doesn't matter what the diction is or the references. You've created a series of musical sounds that have purely musical existence as a shape in the present. So. One of these, I think Section 2, just takes apart all the sounds and amplifies them and makes those sounds run expansively. And there's a little bit of content relation, but not a huge amount. And then another is a lot of people excuse the X-rated content were practicing bad BDSM in Cambridge, and I kept on having to look up BDSM terminology in the poems or find things like cheap vloggers that had been left in the drama studio bins. And I treated this like a language like any other, and it was no different from when I had to look up geology or fishing or, you know, oil painting, whatever it is, baking that other poets write about. And so I thought that the sadomasochistic relation between the Petrarch's narrator and the absent cruel beloved uh, was something I could play with. Uh, So I took that into the present of the kind of dark, torturous Cambridge BDSM poet scene and did things like the capitalization of the pronoun for the dominant person and the lowercase for the submissive person. But the The other thing, though, is I think that the present and the past in language uh, are contemporaneous in people's speech in ways they don't think about. I want to
0: speak a little bit about roses. Yeah. I was really struck by this line in your poem, Strong as Roses. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: This is the line. When traced, this blossoming reaches back to a forgetting in cotton clothes. Again, this is another poem that feels like it's addressing the afterlife of things, of people and the forms they take in the present. Um, You place blossoming and forgetting in a relation that feels quite hopeful to me, but also relies on this act of tracing, um, which could be understood in textual compositional terms. Mm. Is poetry a form of tracing? And what kind of afterlife does the tracing of poetry offer?
1: Of course, immediately have to take issue with the word poetry, because I often want poetry to be split into thousands of senses. I've said this in other places, I'm going to be boring and say it again, that poetry could refer to what you have in a hallmark card, which can move people genuinely, particularly if they're at a moment of, of bereavement or you know strong love or whatever then stylized or cliched language encodes their emotions and a little sort of clicky rhyme would actually speak to them and that could be called poetry or or the poetry which is locked into a very classical form and it and replicates that classical form exactly. Say, if you were a traditional tanker poet, or if you're practicing particular kinds of Arabic poetry, that's also poetry, but it doesn't re- refer to originality in the way you would expect in, in the contemporary West. But that's also poetry. So arguably the word is just too big uh, at the moment. If we're talking about the sort of poetry I do, which exists in books uh, and that people are expected to read a few times uh, and not necessarily understand but be intrigued by or moved by a bit of it, and I take that as a working definition. Then I'd say it isn't tracing in the sense of uh, sketching something lightly, but it's tracing in the sense uh, of uh, feeling that the paper you write on is translucent uh, and that there's something else under it. a lot of times, sort of the associations with flowering and blossoming
0: mm-hmm. is about we have associations of growth. It's very positive, it's very future oriented, but then you actually attach it to forgetting, which brings me to the poem that I was going to ask you yeah. to read, if you wouldn't mind reading us
1: Heirloom Rose for Maya. Heirloom Rose for Maya, Heirloom Rose argument in which way a flower could be an heirloom, via DNA only, or the price of hybridized flowers, i.e. replicability, not uniqueness, and punishment of, culling, killing of, such specimens as fail to conform. In a garden with wet grass swishing round one's ankles, looking up at roses to look up a pain in the neck, and a posture of worship at expensive roses frail with pests beaten off by invisibilized gardeners while with someone else's secretly bloodied historical brick or stone wall such masonry returning to the replicability of the heirloom rules especially as roses are more or less infertile. This seed, minuscule, dry, produced like dust by a perfect empty room-womb dead head. Yes, returning to the replicability, it could be because any rose, Gulab, is as sweet as any other rose, insofar as the rose itself queens it over us by sheer assertion of roseness, the way the cheapest plastic tiny Taj Mahal model in the post office corner shop still transfixes purchasers. Because it means India, the post office factual location shelved and overcome by the idea of an historical palace, which we also know to be distant. Which means what is overcome, too, is the idea of the object's nearness. To buy it is to buy into far away. It is a magic object, and for similar reasons, every rose works magic however handiwork chairbacks heirloom loom woven tapestry needlepoint wool women's fingers flattened passed down designed for living restored as when made by the dead Heirloom rose n'a rien voir with the jardin, mais plutôt as a rose de l'intérieur, creation of shades ombrageuses, a rose best left unsunned, fading, faded, as settled upon the price fabricated rose. The word heirloom makes rose not verb, not rise, not and lilies, not catholic, not angel, virgin, magnificat bouquet, rather heraldry, stamps, elfishness, the reddest rose, nonetheless a blonde princess, dangerous, dangerous to me, rose of heritable identity, not flaming, shedding, transgressing parterre and pathways, not rose phoenix, rose curieuse, but emblem of empire, imperial as natural, pressing away the senses right, right to come to the rose as is. You could even make wars under its banner. York or Lancaster, roses, rose is, rose isn't. Sorry, Gertrude Stein, rose exceeds, is in excess of, no, I mean, is exceeded by connotations with heirloom of rose. Thank you. What I love here is how the idea
0: of rose really explodes. It brings together the attachment to empire, Mm -hmm. its origins in the East, the reproducibility of colonialism, but also what it means for a word like rose, which can so easily be a cliche and indeed is a cliche, um, how it becomes vital, how we revitalize it, um, and how you do so in this poem. Restored
1: as when made by the dead, you write, so i was working with maya chowdhury who was on the inscribe mentoring program for people tree press and she's a very brilliant and independent multimedia interactive artist and theater maker but was working towards first full-length collection and she's is uh, very deeply into ecofeminism and she had been researching for example the journey of the carrot uh, from its origins uh, which I will get wrong, so I won't quote them, and through different stages of nobleness and color into the strange orange cones that end up in supermarkets in Britain today. So she had a poem called Heritage Carrot. And part of what we did was writing together. So we would set an exercise, and this one was an exercise that Maya set, where we each had to do continuous writing without a pen leaving the paper. So this one I did continuously. And again i wanted to have a time in my mind and so i addressed a simultaneity of time through simultaneity of place i thought of the roses my father's mother used to grow in trinidad which she grew for religious offerings and people have brought roses and all sorts of other plants by all sorts of illicit means to Trinidad, they're not indigenous. And I didn't see roses like that anywhere else until I went to Delhi. And they're the same many petaled crimson, highly fragrant Sufi roses. I mean, though obviously we're not Sufi, but the ones that are being offered by Sufi sellers at the shrines in the streets. It's with that variety of rose. So that was two sets of roses. Uh, then I was thinking of the rose garden, which is made uh, in in Oxford above the old Jewish cemetery, and it's a rose garden to commemorate to the people who worked on penicillin. I believe. Uh, there used to be there what I called the Beauty and the Beast rose. Uh, so then there were also the roses in a garden in Edinburgh that my and I were sitting in during some of our writing exercises the three simultaneities of of rose in real place. And I wanted to return roses to the kind of power they would have had for people who had to work closely with them, either as gardeners or as embroiderers. So in a way, I wanted to connect with the living power that the dead had. So that was the restoration of the dead. If you had to do endless needlepoint of roses, even if you're doing it mechanically, you're still inhabited by the exactitude of this. And you couldn't have done it that mechanically if you didn't have some knowledge of the template ruse. Uh, if you did one now without really knowing what a rose was like, you wouldn't be able to get in as, as a sort of thorniness, as a sort of uh, geometry of leaf and shading of color that you can see on earlier embroideries, that even if it's... Uh, done as a means of mass reproduction by human finger still is rooted in at some point an exact observation of a living rose so yeah i I thought i could get back to the living by thinking of the dead in that way the living apprehension of the thing cutting through all sorts of appropriative discourse that people politically and historically layer onto the thing In a number of poems in this collection,
0: as well as in your earlier works, you often locate the speaker of the poem on edges, borders, and thresholds of language, time, place. This has been discussed in responses to your work. In this particular line, there's also the threshold between inside and outside, between home and elsewhere. But here it's also tied to the threshold between life and death. Which brings me to the poem, which has this title, and when desire for air not piped through filters, picks up in your urgent legs, remember. This poem addresses a woman named
1: Juliet Tam. Could you tell us about her? Basically, she was a woman who went out jogging and disappeared and she's never been found. That sort of thing happens unpleasantly often in Trinidad and she nonetheless became a figure who was mourned and also became a sort of warning to people of how easily you can just disappear, how easily and unfairly that what you think is most substantial, the body you move around in or the body that you are, just can disappear from any interaction with what you thought was its history, you know, its continuous history. There's certain things you're told not to do if you grew up in Trinidad. There's a very large park, well, which is also the largest roundabout in the world because all the traffic circulates around it at a certain point in the capital, which is the Queen's Park Savannah, which is a common green area. And uh, you're taught, told not to walk directly across the middle of it. What was horrifying to me was that a lot of disappearances don't happen if you do the taboo thing. They happen if you come out of the shopping mall, or you're getting into your car, or you go jogging. Those are where they actually happen. They don't happen if you walk across the middle of Savannah, which I've known people to do, and they come out the other side. So there's a complete mismatch between what's perceived as the border between the dangerous and familiar, and where that border actually is. I think there's something about when people disappear
0: that allows for their reappearance in other contexts and other forms, which isn't to say that your poem is a form of reappearance. I found really striking the different things that your poem is doing.
1: I think as well when that narrative uh, exists around a particular person, and I can think of other narratives, uh, for example, of a Japanese musician who was murdered in Trinidad uh, in the Savannah close to a place where I often go running when I'm back there or when people have done something which is an extraordinary success uh, then they they do become conjured up and they become co-present with their own body definitely I always feel my own body close to that of a murdered woman's body now when I go past a certain set of trees. But then I also have seen women who are very athletic, very successful, whizzing past me and you know, doing things I couldn't do. I've seen people who are carnival queens uh, doing great feats of performance and athleticism in the savannah as well. And uh, the act of making my body be present in that place somehow conjures those other bodies as absent presences alongside mine if that makes sense it does yeah i think that's why i'm also interested in in poetry being I don't want to say multicultural, which is a word I object to, but aware of the multiplicity of people who have always inhabited different countries and the way that everyone really has an identity as having travelled, even if they only make small travels between home and hospital, or even if their family travelled 3,000 years ago. Because when those ideas of travelling and co-presence are shut down, is when people start to normalize the story of a land as belonging only to one kind of body. So it's important to feel your your body is co-present with the living absence of others who have been or could be here. I wanted to ask you about the poems
0: that appear, and now I feel uncomfortable using the word poem, Mm -hmm. but we'll just understand poem to mean. What you have written. These things, these These things things. and words with
1: with space around (laughs) them. Right. These
0: bundles of text that are your poems. I wanted to talk about a few poems in the book that carry the title after and the ways that this word after suggests translation, but also rewriting, but is also, like so many of your poems, playing with relations to place and time and where place and time are overlap, Um, where they. Replace each other, so after isn't simply um, one text following the other, but can also be uh, a marker, a temporal marker or a geographic marker. So, could you say a little bit about your after poems?
1: Yeah, there are several different ways that after is working there, and one of them is simply that I read as much French as English literature when I was in my teens, and it could just be a straight taking over of Dapré because I kept reading d'après this and that in the texts I was reading and uh, also my mother specialized in 18th century French and I was aware that saying something was after something was also a means of creating a fictional frame which mightn't be true when your Persian letters mightn't really be Persian but it creates that sense of a hinterland which was important for me because I wasn't that keen on the idea of originality whereby the poet has inspiration drop upon them and then the poet simply to begins to speak so by putting after at the start of a poem I uh, wanted readers to feel that the poem had already been journeying some way whether it was somewhere else that they could have, uh, that they could go through and beyond it so in a way after the sort of uh, like a beware deep water or Approaching weak bridge sign, one of those, it's a signpost of, of where you are in that poem, it's in relation to other poems, and you can't sort of rest with being with one thing just because you happen to have one thing. If you're a poet who's done a poem in the style of Kabir, for example, Arvind Merotra writes about this and then becomes absorbed into poems supposedly by Kabir. Then there's a kind of living of the style of poetry and thought, uh, which is Kabir-like, and eventually the idea of authorship begins to dissolve. When I do an after-poem, I haven't dissolved authorship quite as much as that, uh, but in a way I've seeded a certain amount of authorship. And I'm I'm trying to say that uh, the voice, and this is not an original voice. It's one of a set of poetic voices. And I know that, for example, some poets have spoken to have modeled themselves uh, particularly, I think, male London poets to be horribly generalizing that you have to go and uh, go into dark, seedy underbellies of places uh, and be in the charnel houses and the brothels as well as in a slightly privileged way and have you know, ex- experience experiences, uh, and then explode yourself into being a transgressive character. And Taylor is a particular sort of poet. Or then there are other poets who become nature poets. You have to have incredibly long walks in the woods or by rivers, and collect fragments of this and that, uh, and uh, collect the voices from the past. And it's quite hard for that sort of poetry not to feed a sort of nativist. Uh, or politically quietistic narrative about the relationship to British landscape, because self-selectingly, or maybe according to marketing, you'll hardly ever find a non-white poet is allowed to be a poet of landscape in that long walking ruminative way, even if that's what they do. That's quite interesting to me. But there's a third idea of the poet which I had, which again was slightly ancient world, which is that you wonder through time and place uh, that you've taken up a kind of immortal vagrancy and that when you wander through any place uh, you can be talking to the other poets who've wandered through and if for example i had a put down from someone in oxford or elsewhere all i had to do was immediately conjure the other people who had walked through there in other centuries uh, writing and reading things uh, and if I dragged my hand along a piece of oolite along the stone, it felt like holding hands with the past, being part of a chain of poets. And for me, the after is trying to create a poetic persona that isn't self-fashioning in the sense of the self walking through the transgressive urban or the self walking through the meditative nature. It's the non-self self I want to go back to that weird phrase of Immortal vagrancy, where you're not quite dead or not quite alive. If you're one of my poets, you're consciously somebody who's historical by being uncomfortable and outside history. You might be going through somebody else's battlefield, with the certainty is that you, you will be going through a battlefield or you're always going to be in a situation of gratitude for sleeping at someone else's heart the importance to me in that, uh, that you unsettle yourself from one text into another text uh, and unsettle yourself to be in the company of those who have always been doing that.
0: Thank you, Vani, for being a part of this conversation. Thank you.
1: Ooh, I feel tired and emotional now, without even being drunk. <laughs>
0: This episode features the poem Heirloom Rose for Maya from Vani Capaldeo's collection Venus as a Bear, published in 2018 by Carcanet Press. In the next episode, I'll be joined by Palestinian poet Yusuf Kasimiyeh. Staying Alive is an original podcast series created and presented by me, Adriana Jacobs, with editing by Daniel Bieber and Danny Cox, and music by the Zombie Dandies. Support for this podcast comes from the John Fell Fund. For more information about this episode, including materials that didn't make it into the final cut, visit the podcast website, stayingalive.show.